In an age where light is only the flick of a switch away, it is easy to take for granted just how much life as we know it depends on the sun, ever rising and setting exactly on schedule, day after day, year after year. But for most of human history, sinking life to the rhythm of the sun was not as optional as it is today. Consider perhaps how disruptive the sudden power outage is to your daily life. Then contemplate what would happen if it never came back on. You may start to get a sense of what it was like on those rare occasions when the midday sun seemed to vanish behind a black veil, abandoning the world to darkness, if only for a brief moment. Cultures throughout human history, seemingly unconnected by geography or time, look to this brief overturning of the natural order with fear, pending all manner of ill fortunes from the death of kings to the calamitous end of life on Earth. In some cases, the only way to forestall the doom signified by the sun seemingly being devoured in the sky was through human sacrifice, an offering of blood to appease the dark forces being unleashed. And while today science offers us a kind of shield from what may seem like silly superstitions, there still lives in us all a primordial nature, shared by 10,000 generations of humanity, that looks up at a solar eclipse and sees death. Why, hello there. My name is Kyle. You're listening to Killer Cosmos, and we are back with John Wayne Gacy's chart this week. We're going to be looking at some of the more significant events in his life to see how they line up with transits to his chart, his annual perfections, and a little splash of zodiacal releasing. If you haven't already listened to part one, I would highly recommend you do so, as you're really going to want the context of what's going on in his chart to understand what different activations are doing. And while you're at it, why not throw some stars on the episode or leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts? Or better yet, why not head on over to podchaser.com? You can find this show as well as all your favorites on there and rate and review the show or even specific episodes. If you're not familiar with Podchaser, it's basically the IMDB of podcasts and really a must for any fan of podcasts. It's pretty cool. You can look up your favorite podcast creator or even a celebrity and see all the podcasts they've done or made guest appearances on. I've been finding a lot of really great podcasts that way. Now, before we get started, there is something I want to say for the record. When we're looking at astrology, we're really looking at potential. Any given placement has the potential for a lot of different manifestations. On this show given the kind of people we are talking about, a lot of the discussion around their birth charts potential is really going to be worst case scenario in orientation. I guarantee more than one person was born around the same time as John Wayne Gacy, for example, but I'd be willing to bet he was the only one that kept a pile of dead teenagers in his crawl space. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I know a lot of people develop biases about certain signs and certain placements. And there are a lot of gross generalizations that tend to float around on the internet. 
well, a bit of that is inevitable and natural. We all have certain signs that we just have some prejudices against and we just don't like as much. Not me, obviously. I love Leos. But there are positive and negative manifestations of all placements. It's just on this show, we're going to talk a lot more about the latter. Speaking of which, let's talk about Gacy's rising sign. If you recall, at the end of part one, we left things on a bit of an ambiguous note regarding Gacy's rising sign. Gacy being Sagittarius rising quite close to the Scorpio cusp. So close that a delay of just about 10 minutes to the recording of his birth time, certainly not unheard of, we would have a Scorpio rising for Gacy, with the ruling planet Mars and Gemini in the 8th house. Now that all by itself sounds really good for the birth chart of a serial killer, doesn't it? Ruling planet in the house of death, Scorpios, they're pretty evil, right? But if there is one thing I try to avoid on this show, it's lazy astrology. So, I went deep down in the rabbit hole. I went back and I looked at all the significant events of Gacy's life, looked at the transits, looked at annual perfections from the perspective of both Sagittarius rising and Scorpio rising, cross-referenced them, made up little score sheets weighing the different possibilities. At one point, I was even convinced that Gacy was somehow both a Scorpio and a Sagittarius rising. A Scorpitarius rising, if you will. And after diving into the depths of madness and obsession, for who? For you, listener. I want you to know that. I have concluded that while I could spend this entire episode presenting you very reasonable arguments for both, I'm about 90% certain that Gacy is indeed a Sagittarius rising. And because I care about you, listener, because I care about the integrity of your sweet little brain, I will spare you joining me in the quagmire of alternative perspectives and possibilities so that you can go to sleep tonight. So if you're unfamiliar with annual perfections, we're essentially counting forward from the ascendant for any given year of Gacy's life to see what planets and houses in his chart are being activated. Whenever a sign gets activated by perfection, you can expect to see some version of the potential indicated in the chart to manifest. Now, years when the sign in which the ruler of the ascendant is activated often contain particularly significant events that shape a person's trajectory in life. You'll also usually see very characteristic behavior, also often with the first house itself being activated as well. We might want to even call these years, that's so Gacy years. So with Gacy's ascendant ruler in his seventh house, seventh house years are going to tend to be that so Gacy years. His first seventh house year, when he was six, him and another boy got caught sexually fondling a young girl. I believe she was the other boy's younger sister. Now, Jupiter, Gacy's ascendant ruler, is being applied to by Mars. Mars is going to generally do rather rash and not super well thought out things, particularly in Gacy's case. 
and Mars rules his fifth and twelfth houses. So we have Gacy doing some not very nice Mars, sexual exploration, fifth house, with help from, or possibly under the influence, of a friend. Venus in the third, ruling the eleventh, friends, is overcoming Mars and Jupiter by a trine. But it doesn't go so well. Mars ruling the twelfth is going to tend to get Gacy into trouble. And while Venus might be helpful to Gacy, not necessarily other people, in the future, Mercury rules that Mars-Jupiter situation. And you may recall from the last episode, Mercury is in its fall in Pisces, in his fourth, and besieged by Malefics. So the outcome in this case is that Gacy gets a beating from his father as punishment. Now isn't that just so Gacy? I mean, maybe a little, but I'd be willing to bet that incident had a lot of influence on an impressionable six-year-old Gacy's psychology and kind of patterns of behavior. Now it's the same year, and going into his eighth house perfection year, Gacy starts being regularly molested by a family friend. Now when the eighth house gets activated, what the moon is doing in his chart becomes important. And the moon is down there in his fourth, with the south node eclipsing the sun, and being opposed by Neptune in Virgo. So we get some secret childhood abuse going on that is likely very confusing and traumatizing for Gacy. Now, just to drive the theme home, Gacy's 12th house is also being activated, because counting eight signs from the 12th, you get to Gemini, where the ruling planet is located. And what's he doing? Applying to a conjunction with the first house ruler Jupiter. So Mars is much more distinctly playing its 12th house role. And, you know, the 12th is sometimes a place where not great things happen, and we experience events outside our control, such as abuse. Now, if we zoom out a bit and take a look at Gacy's zodiacal releasing periods, we can see that Gacy has the lot of spirit in Sagittarius, and the lot of spirit says a lot about things like career, but also just general activity, kind of a uh, person's intentions, maybe more literally the mind or spirit of the person. So releasing from the lot of spirit, we see that Gacy is in a Sagittarius period from the day he is born until January 13th, 1954, till age 11. So the simplest way of interpreting this is that we would expect to see some significant event or development occur that changes or influences his trajectory in life in some way. Unfortunately, we don't have specific dates for most of what happens in Gacy's childhood, but my attention is drawn toward an incident that occurred when Gacy was 11 years old in which he was hit in the head with a swing, causing a blood clot that went undiagnosed for about five years. Now, it's a very common pattern in the lives of serial killers to see some kind of head injury during childhood. In fact, it's considered one of the key ingredients in the serial killer soup. Age 11 is also a 12th house year for Gacy and for everyone, for the record. So we see another version of Mars afflicting Gacy's first house ruler, literally physically hitting him in the head. 
You can get a bit of the fifth house thrown in with it. It's happening on a playground, with the playground. (laughs) And not even knowing the degree to which brain damage from this really ended up influencing his behavior later on, the blood clot created a lot of other health issues for Gacy and contributed to him spending a large portion of his teenage years in the hospital, which no doubt just added another layer of miracle grow on Gacy's already blossoming inferiority complex. Then at 18, he had his second seventh house perfection year. Now bear in mind that the first house and tenth houses are also being activated because you get to the ruling planet when you perfect seven signs from both houses. So 18 turns out to be another big year. It's when he dropped out of high school and became involved in politics for the first time. He started working as uh, assistant precinct captain for the Chicago Democratic Party. This is also when Gacy, after having a dispute with his father, skipped town without notice and moved to Las Vegas, where while working at a mortuary, he had his little snuggle session with the dead teenager in the coffin. I think we can call this one a That's So Gacy year, as this is something Gacy ended up doing quite a bit after he graduated to murder. After killing his victims, he would often sleep with their bodies in his bed overnight before taking them down to the crawl space or dumping them in the Des Plaines River. So these seventh house years really seem to be formative years that seem to escalate Gacy's evolution into a full-blown serial killer. And then the first house perfections almost seem like culminations where Gacy sort of peaks and then things kind of go downhill. From 1960 to 1966, however, Gacy seems to find his stride, achieves a lot of status and success within the JCs. He gets married, he has his first kid, and even his daddy is super proud of him. But it's in 1966, during a first house perfection, when Gacy moved with his family to Waterloo, Waterloo, Iowa to manage his father-in-law's KFCs. That's when things start to unravel and Gacy starts to act increasingly like a very naughty Jupiter. In 1966, Gacy is only 24. Jupiter is his main time lord this year and he's definitely feeling frisky, which is a little surprising. When just looking at his solar return for the year, he had Saturn transiting his fourth house, creeping up on his natal sun and moon, just separating from an opposition with a Uranus-Pluto conjunction in Virgo in his 10th house, all squaring his natal Jupiter, which to me, in the context of his chart and his life, look a bit like a rupture in Gacy's personal underworld, the hatching of demon spawn emerging from a fissure deep in Gacy's psyche. Gacy's increasing prominence fueling his fractured ego, empowering him, giving him permission to begin acting out, acting out obsessions that had maybe previously been dormant. But he's, you know, mid-Jupiter return, and having his synodic Venus return on his 24th birthday. Venus's synodic cycle is about eight years long. 
So every eight years, Venus will be almost exactly in the same place in the sky as it was eight years before. Venus also retrogrades in roughly the same signs and degrees every eight years, drifting slightly over time. But when you map out Venus's cycle in stations, you get five symmetrical points forming a perfect pentagram, or what kind of looks like five petals of a flower. It's quite beautiful, actually. I'll include a link to an animation that demonstrates this in the show notes. Gacy was born just a few weeks after a Venus retrograde through Aquarius and Capricorn. Venus was still in its shadow degrees. But this can be a pretty powerful point in Venus's cycle. It's kind of fresh out of retrograde, starting to pick up speed. She's kind of gaining strength, and, you know, she's a morning star. So more forthcoming, more outgoing, not always super modest, and bright and bubbly. Later on, you know, when the cops were tailing G- uh, Gacy after the murder of Robert Peast, and, you know, Gacy was trying to get information and throw him off and, you know, buying the cops dinner and everything, you know, those cops described him uh, in really kind of glowing terms. Effervescent It's a word that they used. But you know, a Venus-Jupiter shrine, pretty effervescent, especially with a morning star Venus. So at least to some people, Gacy did get that chunk of it too. But, you know, I think that uh, Venus of his can also look a lot like an extra horny Venus, especially when an excessive sex drive is indicated in other areas of the chart, like it is with Gacy. But you can think about Venus's synodic return Sort of the equivalent of a day chart Jupiter return. Both are typically transits that deliver some of the best goodies. And Gacy, you know, has both going for him in 1966. So while demon spawn are sort of hatching in his soul, uh, things are going pretty well for him. There's kind of a nice ripe playground being set for all that demon spawn to play in. Because Gacy really kind of has the hookup. He gets handed the management of three KFCs by his father-in-law. He has this new authority, which he flaunts and lords over his employees at every opportunity. Former employees of his described him as incredibly overbearing, but overall pretty ineffective. He liked to make kind of big speeches about all the changes he was going to make. And he would tell people that he, you know, owned the KFCs, which really annoyed his father-in-law. Similarly, the hotel that he would host his kind of porn and drug parties to draw in new JC recruits was, you know, owned by another JC member. But he would, of course, tell everyone that that it was his place. This is kind of part of what Gacy would do to really ingratiate himself to anyone with any kind of influence or authority possible. Whether he was shamelessly bragging about made-up accomplishments like being a colonel in the Illinois governor's brigade to bribing local police with buckets of chicken, all the while acting like a giant baby whenever he didn't get his way. He ended up throwing a a seizure-like temper tantrum when he lost a card game. Actually ended up having to go to the hospital. And his sleazy and seemed to be like pretty transparent manipulations really worked on a lot of people. But many others saw him as the sniveling, obsequious little bitch that he was. <laughs> and his, uh, his, father, <clears throat> his father-in-law was among them. But it worked well enough for him to be named Man of the Year by the JCs, as well as Vice President. 
Casey became increasingly debaucherous as well, indulging in all kinds of drugs, engaging in some, you know, consensually, consensual sexual relationships with other JC members and, you know, prostitutes. But Gacy, you know, really dominated his wife, using her as kind of yet another resource in his kind of quest to satisfy his insatiable appetite for sex and social influence. On several occasions, he offered people sexual favors from her. And the wife swapping that they engaged in of other JC couples was really probably not her idea. Something that he manipulated her into. This is also when he began running his little social club for his employees, which ended up being kind of a sanctuary, if you will, for teenage boys to party. Gacy's main angle for getting kids to fuck him was to suggest a winner-gets-a-blow-job pool game. And when that didn't work, he actually fabricated a certificate from the governor of Illinois commissioning him to conduct sexual studies on the boys in which he would pay them for their participation. And, you know, some of it was going to be heterosexual and some of it was going to be homosexual, but, you know, it's for science. It's not gay and you're going to get paid. And the whole's a whole, right? But one night while Gacy's wife was in labor with their second child, Gacy nearly killed one of his teenage employees after his usual methods of coercion didn't work. This boy would eventually testify against him in 1978, but for now, Gacy was living his best life. During interviews with him while he was on death row, Gacy would look back on this time as perfect. Now, isn't that just so Gacy? Now, August 1977, Gacy plants the seed for the end of his party in Waterloo by raping a 15-year-old boy named Donald Voorhees who was the son of a fellow J.C. This was a second-house Capricorn year, perfecting from the Ascendant, and a fifth-house Aries year, perfecting from the Sectolite. So we're looking at Saturn and Mars. And what do you know? Saturn is transiting Gacy's fifth in the sign of its fall, Aries. So, you know, by itself, this looks like a bit of a party pooper transit. Can look a bit like sexual frustration, among other things. Saturn creating constraint in Gacy's ability to enjoy himself or find pleasure. So, given Gacy's personality, really not surprising that Gacy escalates things in his quest to get off. And it's just after Saturn stations retrograde at the end of July, while Mars is simultaneously ingressing into his 12th house of not doing yourself any favors that he goes after the wrong kid. And don't be surprised if something similar comes up again in the future, Gacy goes on a bit of a tear afterwards, assaulting several more boys, but it's not really until March of 1968 that Voorhees reports what Gacy did to him to his parents, of course, immediately pressed charges. Interestingly, March of 1978 kicks off with a Mars-Saturn conjunction in his fifth, closing out this Saturn-Mars year with a big wrench being thrown in his and the fifth house gears. Now moving into a third house perfection, Aquarius is activated, and Gacy's sixth house is activated, perfecting from the sect light. The fifth house is also activated again, as perfecting from the fifth, you find Mars in the third sign from the fifth. 
So Gacy's Saturn, Venus mutual reception is very much in play, as well as Mars. Now, there's a Virgo pileup in Gacy's 10th house, at the beginning of August, when preparations are being made for the trial. And Venus is kind of in the mix there, but not doing so great, maybe not doing Gacy favors at this particular moment, being in the sign of its fall in Virgo. It certainly looks like he's kind of under examination. And then Saturn goes retrograde in the beginning of August, kind of delaying the onset of his Saturn return. And Gacy makes an attempt at witness intimidation, paying one of his employees to assault Voorhees, but it backfires. After Voorhees reports the attack to the police, and they arrest Gacy's employee, who spills the beans on Gacy. Now, come November 7th, the day that his trial begins, I might have been a little surprised. That Saturn sort of stalling before the ingress into Taurus, and Venus transiting his first in a nice tight trine with Saturn, doesn't really seem to help prevent Gacy from having the hammer brought down on him. Which seems like it's not the right time yet. But looking up at Gacy's 10th, the day his trial starts, Mars and Jupiter are in an exact conjunction right on his natal Neptune, a little bit too reminiscent of Gacy's also Mercury-ruled Jupiter-Mars situation natally. But now, all of naughty Jupiter's misdeeds are in the 10th and on display for everyone to see. And Gacy is subsequently sentenced to 10 years in prison. All things considered, Gacy's Saturn return goes remarkably well, given his night chart Saturn being in the sixth and him already being at the beginning of a 10-year prison sentence when his Saturn return officially kicks off in April of 1969. Gacy is able to take on the role of model prisoner quite effectively, engaging in much of the same schmoozing, lying, and manipulation he did outside of prison. He joined the inmate chapter of the JCs, eventually becoming president. He joined the prison choir, discovered a gift for culinary arts, and became the head chef. He got his GED. He was Santa Claus during the prison Christmas celebration. He even oversaw the construction of a miniature golf course in the prison. But his wife did successfully file for divorce, which finalized in 1969, after which Gacy would never see his children again. And this actually did seem to really upset Gacy, perhaps for narcissistic reasons, as much as any genuine love for his children. But Gacy was reportedly a very attentive and affectionate father during the short time he was with them. And then on Christmas that year, Gacy gets dealt another body shot, crushing emotional blow, when his father died of cirrhosis of the liver. This actually did seem to break something in Gacy. He seemed to believe that his father's death was a direct result of his sodomy conviction, having died from shame rather than decades of alcoholism. So while Gacy really seems to get off easy, all things considered, you can't really say this is a subjectively positive period for Gacy. You definitely get a lot of Saturn return themes, particularly difficult ones. It's not uncommon to lose a parent during a Saturn return, and also fits in pretty cleanly with it being a fourth house perfection year, and that fourth house containing an eclipsed sun on the south node. Might see the death of an abusive father. Now, while Gacy had been on kind of his best behavior, 
more or less, in prison and had, at least by all appearances, been avoiding sexual encounters with any other inmates, even kind of frequently professing disdain for homosexuals on multiple occasions, which really seems to be primarily to ingratiate himself with some of the more powerful inmates, but also to sort of back up his continued claim that he was innocent and had been framed, and, you know, possibly to maybe counteract any information that might have got out about what he was actually in prison for. He told everybody that, you know, he had just shown some porn to some underage teenagers. No big deal, just dudes being guys. But after his father's death, there are a handful of stories describing Gacy participating in or inciting violence against homosexuals while in prison. You can really see Gacy kind of externalizing some of the guilt he felt. Gacy's father's death being really the event that helps kind of push things over the edge and helps kind of turn up the more violent end of Gacy's relationship with homosexuality. But while Gacy overall has a pretty rough go of it, the first half of his Saturn return, Venus seems to take over as dispositor of Gacy's Saturn. And also being in the overcoming position of the sign base square seems to be granting Gacy an inordinate amount of luck when it comes to the shit that he gets away with. On June 18th of 1970, Gacy is approved for parole and released on probation. After which, Gacy relocated to Chicago to live with his mother per the conditions of his probation and took a job as a chef. But during the course of his year of probation, Gacy was charged on two occasions with the sexual assault of underage boys. The first on February 12th, 1971, for attempting to rape a teenager he had brought home after picking him up at a bus station, but the charges were dropped when the boy didn't show up at court. Then on June 22nd, Gacy was arrested after he lured another teenager into his car and used a fake sheriff's badge to coerce the kid into blowing him. But Gacy accused the kid of blackmailing him, and the cops probably not wanting to deal with all the icky gay stuff, just threw the case out. But none of this managed to make its way back to the board of parole back in Iowa. As a result, Gacy was a fully free man by October of 1971, and the records of his past convictions were sealed. Now, at the beginning of 1971, Neptune ingressed into Sagittarius for keepsies this time, unlike the previous year when it ended up retrograding back into Scorpio. Neptune is in his 10th natally, promising something about his reputation and activities in the world, and the legacy that he'll eventually leave behind. Now Neptune is transiting his first, inching its way towards an opposition with Gacy's natal Mars. Now hard Mars-Neptune aspects and conjunctions have developed a strong association with senseless acts of violence, violent fantasies, homicidal ideation, and while... It's definitely not the only thing Mars Neptune does. It does seem to show up in the charts of serial killers and their transits. And just in, you know, regular people doing dumb shit sometimes. And it seems the closer Neptune gets to that opposition with Mars, the more Gacy's violent impulses begin to take over. Like a pendulum swinging closer and closer. And his violent behavior really starts to escalate quickly from here on out. March 17th, 1971, to March 17th, 1972, is a sixth house perfection year, 
Venus and Saturn are primary time lords again, and their relationship in his chart becomes especially relevant. Saturn makes its exact return May 2nd of 1971, just as Mars enters Aquarius. Shortly after, in Gacy's zodiacal releasing periods, he undergoes what's called a loosing of the bond on May 14th of 1971. Now, I won't go into a ton of technical detail on what this is, but broadly speaking, this is when you would tend to see a significant shift in someone's direction or orientation in life. There is a change in priorities, and you'll often see pretty significant life-changing events happen around loosing of the bond periods. Saturn quickly, by Saturn standards anyway, zips out of Taurus and into Gemini the following June, making it all the way to a conjunction with Gacy's natal Mars at 5 degrees Gemini, just as retrograde Mars in Aquarius and the North Node make an exact conjunction on Gacy's natal Venus on August 24th, 1971. Now, this looks like something. Pluto is conjunct his natal Neptune. Neptune is on his ascendant. Hell, Jupiter is on his lot of fortune. It would be a lot of fun to tell you something really wild happened that day. This looks like something boiling over or some confluence of events. Unfortunately, there's no documentation of anything happening specifically that day or that time. Exact dates are really hard to nail down for Gacy's activities around this time. But around that time, Gacy was in what appears to be a kind of normal relationship with another man. A man named Reed, who Gacy had begun doing contract work with, and who lived with Gacy, sharing a bed with him, at the time that he had moved in to the house on Somerdale. But one day, again, exact dates are hard to nail down, but at some point, while him and Gacy were working in his garage, Gacy had asked him to bend over and think search for something under his car. While Reed was doing that, Gacy came up from behind him and hit him in the head with a hammer. Reed turns around, blood just running down his face. He asked Gacy why he hit him. Gacy said he didn't know. He just had this sudden impulse to kill him. Reed moved out the next day. Now, given that he moved into the Somerdale house not long before becoming engaged to his second wife, sometime between August and Christmas of 1971, I can't help but wonder if Gacy's impulsive attack on his business-slash-romantic partner coincided with this really intense transit on the 24th of August. Certainly seems to fit well in the context of Gacy's pattern of escalating violence, especially given what happened in the pre-dawn hours of January 3rd, 1972, in Venus had just made an exact return to his chart at 13 degrees Aquarius. The previous evening, Gacy had picked up a 16-year-old boy named Timothy McCoy at a Greyhound bus station. McCoy was traveling from his home state of Michigan to visit his aunt in Omaha, Nebraska. McCoy had missed his transfer and had time to kill until the next bus the following afternoon. So when he was approached by a friendly stranger offering a tour of the city the evening of January the 2nd, the teen saw no reason not to take the stranger up on his offer. The evening eventually led them back to Gacy's place, where they had apparently consensual sex. Sometime 
During the early hours the following morning, Gacy awoke to McCoy standing in the bedroom doorway, holding a knife in his hand. Gacy, believing the boy intended to attack him, wrestled McCoy to the floor. Gacy had allegedly cut his arm in the scuffle, eventually getting the knife from the boy's hands. Gacy recalled McCoy pleading with him, saying he didn't mean it, but Gacy was mad, mad about the cut on his arm and the blood that might get on his carpet, and so he plunged the knife into the boy's chest. Gacy recounted listening to the gurgling sounds the boy made as he died, and his story varies quite a bit here, but at least one version has Gacy discovering that he had blown a big old load in his pants. And also that on the kitchen counter were eggs, unsliced bacon and sausage. It appears that McCoy had been making Gacy breakfast. So Gacy, looking for a quick solution, dragged McCoy's body down into the crawl space and buried him. Out of sight, out of mind. Venus returns are often associated with developments in one's romantic or sexual affairs. It does look like this Venus return... Our big, nasty Jupiter had finally found his first Ganymede. Gacy entered a 7th house perfection year shortly after that. And as far as that's so Gacy years go, Gacy seemed to be on his best behavior. Or at least didn't kill anyone, I should say. Perhaps the murder of Timothy McCoy had finally scratched his itch. Maybe satisfied him for a time. Or perhaps he was trying to put the genie back in the bottle. He got married for a second time that year, and his new wife and two daughters moved into the house on Somerdale. Casey claims that he didn't have any sex with any men during this time. While we may never know if that is true or not, there is at least one report from one of his former employees that in 1973, again, we don't get a date, so this could have been a seventh house or eighth house perfection year, Casey had traveled to Florida with one of his employees to view property he had purchased. And on their very first night there in the hotel room, Gacy raped the boy. Now, after this, when they had returned to Chicago, the teenager, possibly some friends, showed up at Gacy's house and just beat the shit out of him in his yard in front of his wife. Gacy told his wife they attacked him because Gacy had refused to pay the teenager for poor quality work, but I'd be willing to bet that this incident was a bit of a learning experience for Gacy. Gacy later, after his arrest, reported that he only really killed the ones that he saw as a threat to him in some way, either that they would go to the police or expose his activities in some way, but also, you know, if they if they expressed any regret or shame over engaging in sexual activities with him. I imagine after this incident that murder started to seem like a more attractive alternative to having to endure such embarrassing situations. But as is the typical pattern for the vast majority of serial killers who get sexual pleasure out of murder, there's often a wind-down time after the first one, after which it's just a matter of time before they start to get the itch again. That time comes for Gacy sometime around January of 1974. Now, the identity of Gacy's second victim remains unknown, but it does seem to be Gacy's first kind of intentional victim. 
It's the first time Gacy uses strangulation, which ends up being kind of his standard modus operandi. But he also discovered that if you stuff cloth rags down someone's throat, they won't leak fluids all over your carpet when they die. Now, while we don't have an exact date on this one, the whole month of January of 1974, Venus was retrograde in Aquarius, making this period a synodic Venus return for Gacy. So Gacy's really evolving as a sexual being, you know? He's discovering what he likes, what gives him pleasure. Venus returns are good for that. But I think these events that seem to coincide with Gacy's Venus returns really give you a sense of why that what should be a really lovely Venus-Jupiter trine, why that's not lovely. Maybe lovely for Gacy, but I think in this case, Saturn has rendered Venus more or less malefic, as far as anyone else is concerned. And this second murder comes on the back of a lot of significant astrological events as they relate to Gacy's chart. Just a few months before, Neptune hit that exact opposition with Gacy's natal Mars. In December, right as Venus was ingressing into Aquarius to begin its extended stay there, there was the first of a series of eclipses in Gacy's first house, which will tend to be a little extra more significant since this is an eighth house perfection activating the moon. Usually whenever a luminary is activated by perfection, eclipses are going to usually show up as more significant transits wherever they're happening in the chart. And it probably bears noting that Jupiter has also joined the party, making its transit through Aquarius and Gacy's natal Venus. So it wouldn't be terribly surprising if Gacy was feeling a little extra amorous, an increase in desire, and perhaps a suppression of Gacy's ability or desire to control that impulse. And it's not really known how many victims Gacy claimed throughout the rest of 1974. A good half dozen or so victims are still unidentified today. About nine or ten were unidentified at the time police started uncovering bodies in Gacy's crawl space. So we don't know the exact times that many of his victims were killed. We also don't know how many simply kidnapped and tortured and never reported it to police. But in May of 1975, Gacy attempted his handcuff trick on one of his employees, a 15-year-old named Anthony Antonucci. Now, Antonucci happened to be a high school wrestler, and he managed to wrestle Gacy to the floor, get the handcuff key from him, and free himself, and actually put the cuffs on Gacy's wrists. Now, the fact that Gacy convinced Antonucci to let him go just tells you how much of a psychological hold he had over these kids. I think while, you know, Gacy's ability to charm his way out of situations is a factor, he's also doing this while these kids are voluntarily, you know, drinking, smoking pot with Gacy. Some of them are even voluntarily accepting money to offer sexual favors to Gacy. So he's able to harness, you know, their fear of not getting in trouble, but really leverage the stigma of homosexual activity to his advantage. Something that might be important to keep in mind when Gacy says something like, not only are you the only one who got out of the cuffs, you got them on me, to Antonucci. And Antonucci doesn't breathe the word of this to anybody for years. But I think that statement also tells us that Gacy has been practicing his tricks plenty before his third known murder on July 31st, 1975, the murder of John Buktovich. And this one really seems to mark the 
point where Gacy is becoming increasingly brazen, as Buknovich seems to be the first of his employees to wind up buried under the house on Somerdale. Buknovich and Gacy had been involved in a dispute over about two weeks of wages Gacy had owed him, and I can't help but wonder why Gacy, who was otherwise generous with his employees' pay, singled out Buknovich, if not to provoke him, or as perhaps sort of a passive-aggressive punishment, because Buktovich wasn't giving Gacy what he really wanted. One way or the other, I think Gacy knew what he wanted to do with 18-year-old John Buktovich well before he invited him in to his home for drinks on the pretense of resolving their dispute. We're in a 10th house perfection year for Gacy, so it's no surprise that he's seeing a lot of success in his public affairs and business, but also laying the last cornerstones for what he will ultimately be known for. That year, he was appointed director of Chicago's annual Polish Constitution Day Parade, where he would eventually become the source of embarrassment to the United States Secret Service, who would grant Gacy special clearance in 1978 when the First Lady, Rosalind Carter, was in attendance. And she can be seen posing with Gacy in a photograph from that day. It was also in late 1975 that Pogo the Clown would make his first appearance at hospitals and children's birthday parties in the Chicago metropolitan area. On the evening of the murder of John Buktovich, there's a fallen Venus in Gacy's 10th house, while Saturn, in its exile in Cancer, transits Gacy's 8th. Mars and the South Node are converging on Gacy's natal Saturn-Uranus conjunction, which is seemingly all too appropriate for a man about to strangle one of his employees to death for the first time, being that it's taking place in the sixth house. Now Saturn and Uranus are also squaring each other in the sky, similar to the one we're experiencing right now in 2021. Those with hard Uranus-Saturn contacts in their charts may note what is possibly a period of rapid change and restructuring, perhaps volatility being experienced in their lives at this time. A culmination, perhaps, or a sense of building pressure, invoking a change or a, a breakdown that is perhaps long overdue. For Gacy, I believe it points to the cracks forming in the wall he built between his public life and sort of diabolical fantasy life he'd been living behind closed doors. The hate and lust-fueled murder spree he's about to embark on has a kind of unstoppable momentum now and obstacles to that will need to be cleared away. Comes as no surprise then that Gacy and his second wife filed for divorce just months after Buktovich's murder. Carol Hoff and her daughters had returned home early that day, and as a result, Gacy was forced to cancel his plans to bury Buktovich in the crawl space, and instead had to bury him under the concrete floor of his garage, which I imagine was a bit of a pain in the ass. Carol and her daughters moved out February of 1976, and from that point on, Gacy could do as he pleased in the house on Somerdale Avenue. No doubt to the great relief of John Wayne Gacy and to the great anguish of dozens of young men and their families. Then in uh, 1976, Gacy entered an 11th house perfection year, activating Libra and its ruling planet Venus, and perfecting from the sect light, we land on Gacy's second house, activating Capricorn and its ruling planet Saturn. 
Now, we could talk about Gacy's developing political connections or the improving condition of his financial situation, but I think we're all more interested in what else Venus and Saturn are doing together again as Time Lords. Gacy wasted no time celebrating his newfound freedom, abducting and murdering 18-year-old Daryl Sampson, just after Neptune stationed on an exact opposition with Gacy's first house ruler, Jupiter, rather appropriately as Gacy kind of dives headfirst into his very dark fantasy life, finally indulging in all the nasty shit that cooking up in that creepy little brain of his. This is really the kickoff to a nearly two-year-long bender, where Gacy averages close to one victim every two weeks. Five weeks later, Gacy commits his first known double murder under perhaps my least favorite planetary combination, Mars conjunct Saturn in Cancer, in Gacy's eighth house, no less. Now, no offense to anyone who has this in their chart. It's not always horrible. In fact, you can find Mars and Saturn in Cancer in Nostradamus's chart, as well as fantastic actor Alan Rickman's birth chart. May he rest in peace. And really a lot of awesome and fascinating people, actually. David Lynch, Bear Grylls, believe it or not, uh, like Alanis Morissette, even William Shakespeare. But you also get it in the chart of one of the most prolific serial killers of all time, Harold Shipman, and perhaps relevant to more recent news in the birth chart of Derek Chauvin. A lot of things can mitigate or soften those two together. I think most people learn to work with sort of difficulties suggested by that particular configuration in actually much more constructive ways. But symbolically, it's the two traditionally malefic planets in a sign neither do well in, also in a sign that represents really nurturing, you know, children, vulnerability, sensitivity. It's a lot of harshness in a space of life we instinctively want to protect or preserve. You don't want a Mars-Saturn conjunction holding your baby. Put it that way. Anyway, on April 6th, 1976, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared while walking home from school, and 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton vanished later that evening while walking to visit his sister in her apartment. They were found buried, one on top of the other, in Gacy's crawlspace. On June 3rd, Gacy strangled 17-year-old Michael Bonin, then 16-year-old William Carroll on June 10th. James Hakinson, 16 years old, died aspirating on his own vomit from Gacy having shoved the boy's underwear down his throat on August 5th, followed very shortly after by 17-year-old Rick Johnston on August 6th, and at least two other unidentified victims before October. Now, maybe in August it was Jupiter on his Saturn, and Mars on his MC that had Gacy feeling extra juicy, but at this point, murdering boys is just part of his routine. While this is technically a 11th and 2nd house year, the location of those ruling planets seems to describe the main theme of March 1976 to March 1977. At least as far as I can tell. Saturn in the 6th, Venus in the 3rd, the 3rd and the 6th, many ways describe, among other things, our routines. Things we just do every day or every week 
every month, the coffee you make every morning, the doctor's appointment you have twice a year. I think 1976 is the year that murdering teenage boys became routine for Gacy. That might be one of the saddest things about the story. I have to go through and describe every murder leading up to December of 1978 would just be telling more or less a different version of the same awful story over and over again. By the time Gacy is in his 12th house perfection year, he does seem to be becoming increasingly overly competent, even drawing police attention on several occasions. But more often than not, whenever another concerned parent would call in to file a missing persons report or one of Gacy's employees, the police would insist that the kid probably ran away. On the handful of occasions police did actually question Gacy, they, for the most part, took whatever Gacy said, verifying their assumptions that the kids just ran away at face value. Now, again, this is a 12th house year, ruled by Mars. So, you know, the rope and handcuffs that Jupiter's holding is kind of the main theme of this year. It's just a lot of that. But it's also a 9th house year. Well, you know, I can't point to a lot of Ninth House themes in particular, other than maybe, you know, he did murder a handful of college students. Gacy's Ninth House is ruled by the sun. What's the sun doing? Being eclipsed by the moon. Gacy's fourth and opposed by Neptune. So, you know, dreams are being turned to dust in Gacy's fourth house. But interestingly, it's getting to the point where there's too many bodies in his crawl space for him to keep doing his thing. The moon kind of rules bodies in general. <laughs> Eclipsing the sun. It's a little, uh, definitely one way that could play out. <laughs> but it may be a contributing factor. It could be why Gacy, towards the end of 1977, starts experimenting with letting victims go. Such as in the case of Robert Donnelly on December 30th, 1977. He repeatedly raped the 19-year-old, or drowned him in the tub until he passed out, only to do it all over again when Donnelly woke up. Finally, after Donnelly had repeatedly begged Gacy to kill him, Gacy drove him to Donnelly's place of work and let him go. Gacy told Donnelly that if he reported Gacy to the police, that they wouldn't believe him. Sure enough, Donnelly reported him to the police. But when the cops questioned Gacy, he told them that it was all consensual, and the cops believed him. Again, icky gay stuff, right? And Donnelly did eventually end up testifying against Gacy at his trial in 1980. But Donnelly was so utterly devastated psychologically by his ordeal with Gacy that he just fell apart on the stand. Had to be removed, his testimony stricken from the record. Now I can't help but wonder if Gacy had maybe graduated at this point in some way. Straight murder maybe wasn't cutting it anymore. Perhaps it was more satisfying to Gacy, in a sense, murder someone's soul. Make them wish they were dead for the rest of their lives. Wonder if Gacy got any satisfaction, even while he was in prison, knowing that Donnelly was out there, suffering every single day, reliving the things that Gacy did to him for the rest of his life. Or, you know, maybe he'd just run out of space in his crawl space. On February 16th, 1978, Gacy murdered William Kindred, ended up being the last of his victims to end up buried in the crawl space. But Gacy seems to try a slightly different approach on May 21st, 1978. 
just after the beginning of a first house year. What should be something of a that's so Gacy year. And judging from his last first house year, you might expect to see Gacy's self-indulgence get the better of him. Jupiter was in Gemini, just starting to close out his Jupiter return when on March 21st, Gacy chloroformed and kidnapped 26-year-old Jeffrey Rignall, keeping him suspended in a pillory overnight, torturing him, raping him repeatedly, while Rignall drifted in and out of consciousness. As Gacy kept chloroforming him all night. Instead of killing him, Gacy released Rignall, half-naked, bloody face covered in chloroform burns, in Lincoln Park. When Rignall went to the police, they refused to investigate. Rignall didn't really know who Gacy was at that point. So Rignall and two friends staked out the expressway looking for Gacy's Oldsmobile. In April, as Gacy's Jupiter return closed out, perhaps signaling the beginning of the end of his luck, Rignall spotted Gacy's Oldsmobile and followed it to the house on Somerdale. Now able to identify Gacy, the police obtained a warrant and arrested Gacy July 15th, charging him with battery. Interestingly, as transiting Mars formed a conjunction with Gacy's MC. Funny how Mars seems to be in Gacy's 10th house every time he gets charged with assaulting someone. <laughs> However, Gacy was released on bail and was able to carry on as usual while he waited to stand trial for assault on Rignall. In 1978, Gacy disposed of five victims total by dumping them off the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River. November 4th, he murdered 19-year-old Frank Landigan and then 20-year-old James Mazzara Thanksgiving night, November 24th. The following day, though, Jupiter stationed retrograde, and the next murder Gacy would commit would be his last. Evening of December 11th, John Wayne Gacy arrived at the Nissan Pharmacy in Des Plaines to negotiate a remodeling contract with the owner. He spotted 15-year-old Robert Peast working at the cash register. Zeus had spotted his 33rd and final Ganymede, and he quickly kicked into eagle mode. You're a hard worker, he told Peast. I've been watching you. I think you've got what it takes to work for me. I bet I pay better than they do here. How would you like to make five bucks an hour? With that, Peast was hooked, and so Zeus whisked Ganymede off back to Olympus to fill out paperwork. Once Gacy had him back to the house on Somerdale, Gacy dangled the job over Peast's head, skillfully playing off Peast's excitement at the prospect of a new well-paying job, as well as his fear of missing out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity carefully manipulating Peast's emotions to steer him right into his trap. Peast was in a hurry to get home for dinner with his mother. It was her birthday. Just one beer, Gacy said. You don't want to disappoint your future boss, do you? And then Gacy introduced his handcuff trick, demonstrating it on himself playfully like it was part of his clown act. Disarmed and amused, Peast allowed Gacy to demonstrate the trick on him. Then, with the handcuffs, Firmly on Peast's wrists, he asked Gacy what the trick was. It was about 9.45 or so, in the unincorporated part of Cook County outside Chicago where Gacy lived. Jupiter was rising as the sign of Leo passed over the horizon. The moon was full at the top of the sky in the 10th house, exalted in the sign of Taurus. 
It must have seemed like a promising moment for Robert Peast, on the cusp of securing a job that would make his dream of owning a Jeep by his 16th birthday come true. But at 9.55, right around the time Gaisley likely put the handcuffs on Robert Peast's wrists, Saturn began to rise in the sign of Virgo. At night, Saturn is like a supervillain. His powers of constraint and restriction are at their height. With the cuffs on Peace's wrists, Casey's demeanor changed suddenly, from a jovial grin to a dead-eyed stare. The trick is not being a stupid idiot, Casey said. With those words, the tone of the evening took a dramatically foreboding turn. The look in Gacy's eyes made Peace's bowels turn to water. Suddenly, the phone rang. And, as if nothing had happened, Gacy's smile returned. I'll let the answering machine get that. We should probably get you home, right? This confused Peace. What just happened? However, relieved and eager to get out of the handcuffs as soon as possible and go home, he played along. The trick, Gacy said, is to palm the key just right so it doesn't slip out of your hand, but also so no one can see it. You'll learn lots of cool tricks working for me. Gacy made like he was about to unlock the handcuffs, but stopped short and began telling Peast a story Gacy had probably told hundreds of times before. A story about a friend and a night out, and how his friend taught him that a blowjob feels just as good from a guy as it does from a woman. I have a lot of money, Gacy said. I can help you get that Jeep you've always wanted. But when Peast said he wasn't into that kind of thing, Gacy aggressively reached down the front of Peast's pants. I could just fucking rape you now, Gacy said. Peast, now terrified, began sobbing uncontrollably. But Gacy suddenly began apologizing. I'm sorry, Gacy said. I didn't mean anything by it. It was a dumb idea. I'm not a fag. I'm not a fruit picker. It was just a dumb idea. Peace chuckled nervously as Gacy undid the handcuffs, agreeing to forget all about it and reminding Gacy that he had to get home. Absolutely, Gacy said. Let's get you home. You can fill this stuff out at home and bring it to me when you start work. As he approached the door, Peace, feeling relieved and chuckling lightly, I thought you were going to kill me or something there for a minute. Laughing dismissively, Gacy suggested one more trick before they left. Not waiting for an answer, Gacy brought out a rope with a hammer handle tied to the ends in a complex knot. Turn around, Gacy said. What's the rope for? asked Peast. You'll see, responded Gacy. Gacy's rope trick sometimes took hours, with victims passing out periodically, regaining consciousness on occasion, or sometimes convulsing sporadically until death finally came. But judging from accounts of Gacy's statement and autopsy reports, it's likely that Robert Peast was dead well before the dim, wandering star of Saturn, lord of the boundary between life and death, became visible above the horizon that night around 11 p.m. But Saturn, it would seem, had finally turned on John Wayne Gacy. Within days, after Peast's parents had reported his disappearance, a full investigation of Gacy had been launched as Mercury began to station direct in Gacy's first house, exactly opposite his natal Mars. On the evening of December 20th, finally cracking under the pressure of the investigation, Gacy made a full confession at his lawyer's office, just as the moon made an exact conjunction to Saturn right on Gacy's natal north node, with the moon hitting his MC just as police began discovering the first human remains in the crawl space under the house in Somerdale Avenue. Saturn and the North Node transiting seemed to close in on Gacy's MC, 
and then joined by the moon, that pile of lost souls in Gacy's fourth house were finally having their stories told. Gacy was arrested, and over the next two years, Gacy awaited trial in prison as the Cook County Sheriff's Department exhumed all 26 bodies under the house, identifying as many as possible while the state prepared its case against Gacy. Gacy's defense team played the only real defense possible at that point, insanity. Gacy's trial began February 6, 1980, and some familiar friends made an appearance at his trial. During Gacy's last trial in 1968, Mars and Jupiter were together in Gacy's 10th house, and on February 6th of 1980, it seems that they had returned to Gacy's 10th to stand trial. This time, they uh, were retrograde and joined by Saturn, also retrograde. Even Venus's role in Gacy's crimes were being brought to the light, it seems, with the sun having recently formed a conjunction on Gacy's natal Venus. Then as the trial proceeds, the sun would transit through Gacy's fourth house, shedding light on everything Gacy once tried to keep hidden. Mercury, too, seems would join in, stationing retrograde in Gacy's fourth, with the Kazemi occurring almost exactly on Gacy's IC. Then on March 12th, after deliberating only two hours, the jury found Gacy guilty on all 33 counts of murder, setting a record at the time for the most murder convictions in U.S. history. The following day, Gacy was sentenced to death and transferred to death row, where he would spend the next 14 years awaiting execution. Now, somewhat interestingly, Gacy ended a 27-year-long Level 1 Capricorn period, then entered a 30-year-long Aquarius period, August 23rd of 1980. Now, my understanding of the zodiacal releasing technique is admittedly limited, but the Aquarius period, being angular from fortune, is typically a time when in theory, at least, someone is supposed to do their most important work. It is usually a peak activity period, generally speaking. Gacy being on death row didn't really get to do too much this time. However, you could say that some of the farther-reaching implications of his crimes, socially or culturally, may have started to become more apparent during this time, mainly in the subsequent proliferation of killer clowns in popular literature and media. This could even be suggesting that the clown paintings he began producing in 1982, even the book he wrote, A Question of Doubt, which he published in 1992, about how he was allegedly framed, was in some way a more important contribution to his legacy than the 33 murders he committed in the previous period. But also being the sign in which the sect Benefic is in, being favorably configured to Jupiter should in theory indicate that this was a subjectively more favorable period for Gacy. And maybe it was. I can't imagine however much he gained pleasure or felt some kind of satisfaction in murdering all those boys that he was what anybody could call genuinely happy during that time. But perhaps that's why so many are interested in getting inside the heads of people like Gacy. What the subjective reality must be like for people like him is something most people can never begin to understand. 
Nonetheless, if anyone with a lot of experience or knowledge in the use of zodiacal releasing is listening and has any thoughts to share, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Now, the last event I want to look at is in fact the last event of John Wayne Gacy's life. The night of May 9th, 1994, Gacy was escorted into the execution chamber at Stateville Correctional Center. A crowd of about 1,000 had gathered outside the prison to celebrate Gacy's death. At around midnight, Gacy said his last words, kiss my ass. And the first of three drugs that would be used to kill Gacy were injected, sodium pentothal, which put Gacy to sleep. The second, a muscle relaxer, which was intended to stop Gacy's heart, had coagulated, causing a clog, delaying the execution by about 10 minutes. This, as far as anyone can know, didn't cause Gacy any suffering, as he was already unconscious. But after the IV was replaced, the second and third drugs were injected, and Gacy was pronounced dead at 12.58 a.m. Interestingly, just as Uranus and Neptune and Capricorn had risen above the horizon. While Neptune conjunct Uranus in a Saturn-ruled sign, even when Mars and Aries is applying to a square with them, could represent many, many other things than a lethal injection. I think the symbolism is pretty spot on. But perhaps more interesting, even poetic, if not a bit eerie, is that Saturn was transiting Gacy's natal south node within just over a degree, while the south node was transiting exactly within nine minutes of Gacy's natal Saturn at 24 degrees of Taurus, conjunct the fixed star Al Gol. And if you would have looked up at the sky around noon in Chicago later that day, you would have seen the moon pass over the sun, blotting out a little over half of the sun's light for just under five minutes. John Wayne Gacy, born just after a South Node eclipse, which located in his fourth house, seems to describe both his harsh and painful upbringing, as well as the unrealized dreams of 33 lives snuffed out and scattered to oblivion at his hands. How appropriate that the same man would die just before a South Node eclipse. That eclipse in his chart is right on the planet that really seems to be the main corrupting influence in his chart. As if the cosmos itself were signaling the grand exodus of a monster. I want to thank everyone for listening. And if you like the show, love it if you left a review or help the podcast grow by sharing it with a friend. Or, you know, somebody who's not a friend. Why discriminate? And also book a consultation with me on my website, kylepierceastrology.com. Also coming out very soon is a new podcast, The Astrology Hotline, hosted by myself and astrologer Tristan Paler, in which we answer birth chart and astrology questions submitted by listeners. If you have a burning astrology or birth chart question, go ahead and shoot us an email at astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com for a chance to hear it answered on the show. Finally, if you want to stay updated on the latest news regarding the next episode of Killer Cosmos, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Killer Cosmos Pod. But until next time, stay safe 
and don't accept any jobs from strangers offering to show you magic tricks. <laughs>